When we sing of the love of Christ, we know that it is the love of Christ that resulted in him coming and living a perfect life and fulfilling the law. It was the love of Christ that resulted in him giving his life so that we might have victory over sin and death and hell. It is the love of Christ and because of what he has done in his love that we will be resurrected from the grave one day. We're all here because of the love of Christ for us. So let's go now to the Lord and pray and ask our faithful father to minister to us by his spirit yet again today. As we look to his word, let's pray. Father, you are just that. You are utterly and completely faithful all the time. There is not a moment that you are not faithful to us. We rejoice in that. We hope in you. Our confidence is not in ourselves this morning as we look to the Bible or as we try to do anything else in a service like this. But our confidence is in you and your spirit's power to minister to us on account of Christ. So we pray for you to be with us now. Pour your spirit out upon us as we look to the word. Fill me with your spirit as the preacher of your word this morning that I may be useful to these dear people who have gathered here today. We pray that we would have ears to hear what is true from your word and eyes to see it and hearts that would love and receive that truth. Most of all, we pray that you would give and sustain faith in your son today. Give us repentance, we pray. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Friends, we are in Genesis 34 through 36 today, effectively. I realize that Genesis 37, 1 is a part of the sermon text again today, and that's just where we remember, as we often do, that chapter divisions were not in the original. Um, So chapter 37 and verse 1 goes beautifully with what comes before. There were some things, and just thinking back over the last several chapters of the book of Genesis and where we've been in recent weeks, if you think back even to last week's text, it includes Genesis chapter 33, where Jacob wrestled with God, or I think a better way to put it is God came down and wrestled with Jacob. In the aftermath of that, we considered how that was a transformative moment for Jacob, how the Lord did something in him, and we saw in the immediate aftermath how Two brothers who had been estranged were reconciled. There was some good stuff that happened in Genesis 33. Then in our passage today, there's chapter 34 and all of its ugliness and pain. We will see Jacob not doing well in a number of these verses that we're going to survey this morning. This is a reminder that Jacob like his father Isaac, like his father Abraham, like Noah and Adam and everyone before them, is at the same time a saint and a sinner. In our passage today, we will see God summon Jacob again to Bethel, this place where God met with him before. And God will make promises to Jacob yet again. This is what God does. God reiterates His promises. God shows up over and over again in the lives of his people, demonstrates himself to be faithful, promises all of these things that he will do, demonstrates that he is a God of covenant love. When it comes to reading the Old Testament, and in our case right now, we're in the book of Genesis, do remember that these stories, these historical accounts of the lives of God's people are not and their primary purpose are not there as examples for how we are to live. If anything, many times we should seek to not do 
what the people on the pages of Scripture do. These stories, these accounts, are exemplary of the grace of God that saves sinners. They are exemplary of the grace of God and the mercy of God that covers our sin. That is the message that is clearly and repeatedly communicated. These stories communicate what the apostles later make explicit. You may say, well, brother, what is that? Well, it's that in the church, we do not have a righteousness of our own. Rather, ours is the righteousness of Christ counted to us by faith. That has always been the case for the saints through all of history. So if you have your Bibles with you, with all of that by way of introduction, just thinking about our sin, God's faithfulness, and what he has done for his people repeatedly. Open your Bibles to Genesis 34 and verse 1. Again, we're going to be looking at effectively three chapters of God's word together this morning. My plan uh, is to survey the text as I have been doing in recent weeks. It seems often the texts do break down into kind of four parts, just naturally. I did not plan it that way. This is just kind of where we are right now. We're in a number of four-point messages. We will have an extended reflection at the end. Um, you could almost call it three small reflections or one large one. I leave that to you for the triune God we serve who is one and three. All right, so here we go. Point number one, we're going to look at chapter 34 together. This is public service announcement. This is a long point. This is a decent portion of the sermon. Chapter 34, I gave it the heading rape and retaliation. And I'm not trying to be provocative. Rape and retaliation. In verses one to seven of chapter 34, we read about Dinah, who is Jacob and Leah's daughter. We read of Dinah's birth chapters ago. We see that she ventures out to see the women of the land. She heads into town, in other words. Her going unaccompanied was probably unusual. We're not told what Jacob and Leah thought about it all. And we're not told what Dinah's motivations were in going. Regardless, this is not going to end well for her. Shechem shows up in verse 2. He's the son of Hamor, who is the prince of the land. So this is like the king's son, person of power. He sees Dinah, and the language of the text is he saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. He raped her. Then we're told that in the next verse, his soul was drawn to Dinah. And that he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Now, all of this is very sick and twisted. This is like sociopathic, right? We've seen this before. We've seen movies like this before. Where this dude, he sees the girl, he obsesses over her, he has to have her. He then, in some sick, twisted way, convinces himself that he loves her. He's going to speak tenderly to her. It's wicked. It's ugly. Such is the nature of sin in this world. Then Shechem says to his dad, who's the king, the prince, you got to get me this girl. Like, I've already seen her. I've already taken her. I've done what I would do. I've got to have her. You need to get her for me. 
we could infer, just a quick note from verse 26, that Dinah was taken away at this point to the prince's house. And she's effectively kidnapped because her brothers are going to get her in verse 26. So keep that in mind. I mean, in the midst of all of this kind of conversation and negotiation stuff that's going to happen in chapter 34, Dinah is not there. I mean, Dinah is at the prince's house. And we're having this dialogue about, you know, hey, can, can I have her for my wife and all that stuff? This is real. Jacob hears about what's happened. He waits for his sons to come in from the field. And then Hamor, Shechem's father, goes to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, they come in from the field as soon as they hear what's going on. And they are rightly indignant. They're rightly angry. Shechem has done, in the language of the text, an outrageous thing. Then in verses 8 to 12, Hamor is going to talk with Jacob and his sons. It's a wild situation. He communicates that Shechem, his son, longs for their daughter, their sister. He asks that she be given to his son as a wife. And then he suggests several things as to how his people, you know, he's got a city and a people, how his people and Jacob's household can just dwell peacefully together. It's like, hey, man, you know, we we can give one another's daughters to each other and give them to our sons in marriage. I'll give my daughters to you. You give your daughters to me. We can share the land. We can trade, acquire property. It'll be great. Shechem is there, which is wild in and of itself. Dude is standing there for this interchange. He speaks up in verse 11. And he says that he will do whatever it takes to find favor in the eyes of Dinah's father and brothers. And then he tells them effectively, like, name your bride price. I'll pay whatever you ask. So then in verses 13 to 24, Jacob's sons speak up. So it seems that they kind of take the lead here rather than Jacob. And it's not necessarily a good thing on at least a couple of levels in terms of how this goes down. They answer Shechem and Hamor deceitfully. I mean, that is not something we're having to infer. That is told to us by Moses as he penned this. They've learned, the sons have, the art of deception from the master who is their own father. Deception has been a part of this family now for generations. They bait Shechem and Hamor. They sell it hard. Like, well... We can't do this thing because you're not circumcised. It would be a disgrace to us. But hey, you know, if on the condition that you and all your men are circumcised, this could work. I mean, yeah, you know, if if you guys are circumcised, you can have Dinah and we'll all dwell with you and we'll become one people. It'll be great. So Hamor and Shechem, they're pleased with how this has gone down. They go and they pitch this to the men of the city. And the men listen. And they all get circumcised. I assume that this is one of those situations where the king and his son come in town. And they're like, we're going to have a conversation about how this is going to go. And in reality, it's like, well, what choice do we have in the matter? We're going to do what these guys say. That's how it seems to be. 
Then in verses 25 to 29, it gets ugly here. It's the third day. So remember in the scripture that when the scripture talks of the third day, the first day is the day something happens. And then you have the day after is the second day. Two days after is the third day. So this is like a second day soreness for those who have ever had an injury, right? It's often the day it happens, it's one thing. The next day it hurts. The next day it hurts, you know. So these men are in pain from circumcision. And so it's in the midst of all of that that two of the sons of Jacob, Dinah's brothers, her full brothers, Simeon and Levi, right? Both of those brothers were born to Jacob from Leah. Through Leah. So full brothers of Dinah, they go and they kill every man in the city. Then they kill Hamor and Shechem. That's mentioned specifically. And they get Dinah and take her away. Then the other brothers get involved. The sons of Jacob. They're all showing up and arriving upon all the dead bodies. And the looting begins. They plunder the city. They take pretty much everything, including the women and the children. And then in the last couple of verses of the chapter, Jacob is going to rebuke Simeon and Levi. But he's going to rebuke them not exactly for the right reasons. And then they retort and say, well, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And honestly, with the ambiguity here, one could genuinely ask whether they're talking about Shechem or their father. On this section of Scripture, this is another one of those pieces of the Scripture that if you're newer to the Bible and you were to open it up and read it, you would come away thinking, this is really in here? We've been encountering a lot of these in Genesis. It's another one of those that didn't make the flannel board cut, right? For those of you who grew up in the church. I certainly never heard of these kinds of things. I can at least speak from my own experience. We don't often know what to do with accounts like this. I mean, there's, first of all, there's the rape of Dinah. But perhaps we can handle that because it's done by a godless man who is of a godless people. And so we can sort of process that and reconcile that in our brains. But then the thing is, it doesn't really get any better once Jacob and his sons show up in the account either. Jacob comes across in this account as somewhat passive and also quite self-interested. It's not the first time that Jacob's been passive. It's not the first time that Jacob's been self-interested. It hasn't gone well before when those things have happened. It's not the first time, for that matter, that Abraham and one of his sons has been passive and self-interested. It hasn't gone well when Abraham and his sons have been like this, have acted in these ways, or not acted at all. They just kind of you know, stand around with their hands in their pockets and concern for themselves. It's not good. Jacob's sons and Dinah's brothers, right? They are rightly angry. 
They're rightly indignant about what's happened. It's an outrageous thing that's happened. Yet, their retaliation is so over the top. Just a very brief aside on justice and vengeance and trusting the Lord. I'm just kind of stepping over here for about 60 seconds. And then we're going to jump back to the passage. There will come a time in Israel's history when God will give judicial laws to his people as to how they're to handle things when crimes are committed against other citizens. And we now live in a land where the state has been entrusted with the power of the sword. In Israel, this was true. In our context, this is true that we, according to God's word, are not to go outside civil laws to administer justice on our own terms. We shouldn't. On the one hand, we are to leave it to civil authorities to do that. And underneath all of that, we ultimately are to trust the Lord who says, I will avenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord in Deuteronomy cited in Romans. Back here. So brief thought, right, about justice and vengeance and trusting God. The actions of Jacob's sons, the action of Jacob's sons is the furthest thing from proportionate retributive justice. Wrong was done. Justice should be administered. But it should have everything to do with Shechem directly, the one who did the outrageous thing. In this account, there's deceit. The brothers kill every man in the city. They plunder the city. They pretty much burn everything down. And then what's worse, they take the women and children. So like, think about this. It's like they're outraged over what's been done to a woman, their sister. And now in response, are going to make all the women of the city widows. They're going to make some of the children orphans. And then they're just going to take all those people. All of this might make a very interesting movie, but it's not just. And you even have to wonder how much of this, the action of the brothers, is legitimately about their sister and not their own rage. In fact, later on in Genesis, we're going to get here in Genesis 49, when Jacob is dying and blesses his sons, he's not going to bless Simeon and Levi. Because of this incident, listen to these words from Genesis 49. Jacob says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This family that God had said would be a blessing to the nations, suffice it to say they are not much of a blessing here. It's another reminder that when that you see that language 
all the nations, families, peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his family has everything to do with Jesus and not these people, right? So, and then after all of this has gone down, all of this has happened. The carnage has happened. Jacob's response is just, it's just suboptimal. He's concerned, verses 30 and 31, right, for the reproach brought on him. He's concerned for what it's going to mean for him. You have made me a stink to the people of the land. And what if they come after me and my household now? He's concerned about himself. And then he's concerned about himself. And then he's concerned about himself. Right? He does not seem that concerned about his daughter and what has happened to her, at least in the witness that we're given. And he doesn't seem concerned for the reproach that might be brought upon God in all this. To our shame, we can all be like this as fallen human beings. Where if it doesn't affect me, I just don't care that much. Just one final thought and observation on chapter 34 before we move on. I imagine in some of you, as you're sitting and you're listening, or even as you heard me read this account earlier, there is an aspect in which there's a sense of satisfaction in listening to this. What happens to Dinah is wicked and evil and outrageous. And we hear about the brothers wrecking shop. And we're like, yeah, there's something appropriate about that. Someone should pay, as I even alluded to earlier. It should be Shechem, not the whole town. But to be clear, the desire for justice is appropriate. But it's interesting. Like, let, let this be one of those moments where you're like, you think about this. I thought about this this week for myself. Like, it's interesting that we can look at vigilante justice that is grossly disproportionate and sort of be okay with it. And yet, the thought of God acting with justice that's perfect and proportionate, it offends us to the high heavens. Demonstrates the fact that there's something very broken and messed up in us. And on a human level, we're just not very good at justice. We don't have good instincts on justice. And we would do well to remember that. Because we often walk around and talk as though we know exactly what justice looks like. Just for your reflection and mine. Let's move to point two. Point one was chapter 34, rape and retaliation. Point two, I've entitled it Back to Bethel. Back to Bethel. We're going to look at chapter 35, verses 1 to 15 for just a minute. God summons Jacob back to Bethel. This is the place where God had met with him before when Jacob, remember, had to leave town and then was sent out of town, out of the land of Canaan, right? And he ends up going and working for his uncle for a while, all that jazz. But on the way, remember, God met him at Bethel. So God summons him back there. 
Jacob understands at least something of the significance of this. This is evident in how he addresses his household. He tells them, put away the foreign gods, purify yourselves, and put on some fresh clothes. Let's change our garments. On the one hand, it's perhaps as you're sitting there, maybe, I don't know, you're thinking this. On the one hand, it's pretty wild that he has to tell his household to put away their foreign gods, given how faithful and good the Lord has been to Jacob and his family. Maybe you're thinking that. And then on the other hand, we shouldn't be surprised by that at all. And consider even the lives of many in the church. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, ever since I trusted Christ, I have loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and have never wavered. Said no one ever. John Calvin, right, famously wrote that our hearts are idol factories. We just figure out ways to worship stuff that's not God. And he's not just talking about unbelieving people when he writes that. God's people struggle. Friends, you realize, right, that if we had the first commandment down, we wouldn't struggle with the other ones. It all flows out of that. So it's not shocking that Jacob would have to say, hey, put false gods, put the foreign gods away because we're going to meet the Lord. He then says, let us arise. Verse three, right? Let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's a faithful God. So then Jacob's family, they give him the foreign gods and the rings that were in their ears. It would have been elements of pagan worship, right? This is not an indictment on earrings wholesale. So they give Jacob that stuff and then he takes them and hides them by a terebinth tree. So just a couple of thoughts here. Jacob and his household, they prepare to go to Bethel where he will worship the Lord. Now how full-fledged is this preparation? You can evaluate that for yourself. You have the scriptures in front of you just like I do. I mean, one thing I was struck by is, you know, the handing over of idols to Jacob and hiding them, Jacob hiding them, is not quite on the level of what Moses would one day do. Where Moses comes down from the mountain and there's the golden calf incident and he burns the thing and grinds it down to powder and pours it in the water and says, you guys want idols? Drink up. That's, that's pretty intense in terms of a confrontation of idolatry. So we're not quite there in terms of this intensity. Jacob says, we're not going to take idols with us, though. We're going to clean ourselves up. We're going to change our clothes. We're going to prepare ourselves to go meet with God and notice that. That with all of that going on, God is the one who is going to have to show up and minister if anything good is going to happen. God is the one who will speak words of promise. God is the one who will make Jacob and his household holy. You realize that only God can make things holy, right? He's the only one who, can, who is holy, who can then therefore sanctify something else. This is, in other words, true religion, friends. That we would come with a posture to receive what God gives and to cling to what God promises. They're going to go to Bethel. God protects Jacob and protects his family as they travel. He causes a terror to fall on the people of the land so that they do not attack Jacob and his family. They arrive at Bethel and Jacob builds an altar as he was instructed to do. 
And then we're told about a woman named Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse, and she dies and she's buried. And there is lament about this, as is indicated by the name Jacob gives to her burial place, which literally means oak of weeping. Clearly, this woman is significant to Jacob. We're not told, we, we don't read actually of Rebecca's death. But this woman was clearly significant in the life of Jacob. This is the first of three deaths in this chapter. As Jacob is going to be burying this woman, he's going to be burying his beloved wife and also his father. Then God appears to Jacob, another theophany. He manifests his presence with Jacob. He reiterates Jacob's new name. His name is now Israel, and that's what he shall go by and be called. He reiterates his promises of offspring and a land that he's going to give to Jacob. Christ is coming. The promised offspring is coming through this people that will dwell in this land. The nation that will come from Jacob will bear his new name, Israel. And we thought about this at length last week, but I want to briefly reiterate. That name Israel means what? It means strive. He strives. Why does God call Jacob Israel? Why does he rename him? He says, because Jacob has striven with man and with God and has prevailed. And we thought about last week how that name, the fact that that name means in the eyes and mind of God that Jacob has striven with man and God and has prevailed. The only reason that's true is because God humbled himself, came down, took on flesh and lost. Israel. This name that will be the banner over the people of God is a forever reminder of that reality. That they are who they are because God did that. Because God came down and took on flesh and humbled himself and willingly lost to make them a people. It's just like what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He came down and took on flesh and limited himself and willingly gave his life up so that we might live. Willingly lost so that we might have the victory. And then he took his life up again. When we read Israel, that name, Israel, think about that. Think about the incarnation, the suffering, the obedience, the death and resurrection of Christ. To make God's people who they are. So God reiterates all of that to Jacob. And Jacob responds. He responds in worship. God has acted. God has called him. God has shown up and reiterated his promises to him. And Jacob responds by worshiping the Lord. Which is the only appropriate response to all of that. And you realize, too, that that is what the people of God do still to this day. When we come here, we come, Mackenzie did a great job of articulating some of these things in our service already. We come here to respond to what God has done. Full stop. We don't come to do something that moves the needle. God has done it. God has promised it. 
God has promised it over and over again in his word. He speaks to us through his word. And as he speaks, even in an assembly like this, we respond. That's all we can do, and it's what we should do. But we don't come to bring something that God needs. We come to respond and cast ourselves upon the Lord and what he has done. It's always been the case. Jacob's doing that here. He's responding. Jacob is not the one who initiates. God does. May that be instructive for us as we even think about our own corporate worship. This moves us now to point number three. The last two points will be relatively brief before we get to that extended reflection. Point three, I've entitled the end of an era. The end of an era. We're going to look at the last half of chapter 35 together. So in these verses, we're going to learn of the death of Rachel, the wife that Jacob has always loved. We're going to learn of the death of Isaac, Jacob's father. And then there's going to be the naming of Jacob's 12 sons who are going to become the focus beginning in chapter 37. So we're about to pivot and enter into the kind of last large section of this book where Jacob's sons become the focus of the narrative. So that's kind of the end of the era piece, right? This era is ending. A new one is dawning. We read about Rachel and how she dies in giving birth to Benjamin, who is Jacob's last son. You remember when Rachel finally was able to conceive and gave birth to Joseph, she wanted another son even then. And she named Joseph what she named him because his name means may the Lord add, may he add to me another son. Rachel prayed that the Lord would give her another son and she got him, though she would give her life in giving birth to him. Jacob buries Rachel. The wife he has always loved. The last son of Jacob, it's interesting, is they've made their way back into the land finally. The last son of Jacob is born in the land. And his beloved wife is buried in it. We then read of this very disturbing incident. It's almost just interjected. It's like jarringly brief in terms of its account. I'm talking about verse 22. It's a disturbing incident where Reuben, who is Jacob's oldest son, goes in and has sexual relations with Bilhah, one of his father's concubines, one of his father's wives. Now, as I understand this in the scope of the Old Testament, this is not just about lust. I mean, I don't discount lust as a piece of any sexual act. But human beings do sexually perverted things for any number of reasons. Always have. This is not just about lust. It's also about asserting preeminence and power in the family. Think about like this is not the only incident like this. Think about 2 Samuel 15, 16, when Absalom, David's son, runs David out of town and then commences to have relations with all of David's concubines. It's an assertion of power, dominance. We're just told that Israel heard about it. Jacob heard about it. That's it. That's all it says. This happened. Jacob heard. He doesn't address it now, but he will. Again, in chapter 49, when he blesses his sons, he will address this. We then read the 12 names. The 12 sons of Jacob are listed succinctly right here for us. These will be the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Jacob then, finally, at the end of this chapter, he comes to Hebron to see Isaac, his father. Jacob's journey home is now complete. God has brought him and his household back to the land, and they're there. It's been a long, long trip. And then we read of the death of Isaac at 180 years of age, and we read of how Jacob and Esau come together to bury him, which sounds just like the language, sounds just like the language about Abraham, how he died full of years, all of these things, and his two sons who had been somewhat estranged come together for the funeral. In these short span of verses, like I said, Jacob has buried Deborah, this woman who meant a lot to him. He's buried his wife. He's buried his dad. It's real and it's heavy. I couldn't help but think as I was reading about this this week, I could not help but think of the fact that we have lost one of our own number. One of our brothers has gone to be with the Lord, even in this church in the last week and a half. And we will be having Doug's memorial service in the weeks to come. When we remember the life of a saint and when we have this thing called a funeral and we bury someone, what we're doing in that moment it has everything to do with the people left behind, right? It's not, it's not about the person who has died. It's about those who are left. And we are reminding one another that we are commending this person's spirit to the Lord. And we are entrusting the Lord with this body that is being put in the ground and one day will be resurrected from the grave. Death is terrible. And the promise of the resurrection is greater. And we will be remembering that together in just a few weeks time regarding Doug. And even in this text here, we see that death, the effects of the curse and the effects of the fall, still rule in the life of God's people for a time. It will not forever. Praise be to Christ's name. Point four. Point four is incredibly brief. We're going to look at chapter 36 in the first verse of chapter 37. I've just entitled this Esau and Edom. Esau being Jacob's brother, Edom being the nation that descends from him. Just very briefly, why is chapter 36 here? You heard me read it earlier. You might have been thinking that. Why is this here? All of these names and stuff. Well, this section is going to tell us about Esau and his immediate descendants and the development of his descendants into a nation called Edom. Why is this here? In short, it's because God had said some things. And this chapter demonstrates how those things God said are fulfilled. It's just it's always about what had the Lord said and did he keep his word? He did. God had told Abraham, on the one hand, that kings would come from him. And while the Davidic line is mainly in view there, there are kings that come even from Esau. But then remember the words primarily here of the Lord to Rebekah when she was pregnant with the twins. And he told her, there are two nations in your womb. And the older will serve the younger. Well, we're learning here of one, how one of those nations came to be. It's the point of this in the scripture. The Lord did what he said. The other nation from Rebekah's womb is this. And there will be a conflicted history between these two nations on, in an ongoing way. Last observation, just really quickly. The last verse of chapter 36 and the first verse of chapter 37, there's kind of a contrast here. You see how Esau and his people, they live in their dwelling places in the land of their possession, which was not Canaan. And then Jacob, on the other hand, lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Jacob and his family are in the land. Esau and his descendants are not. As we transition to this one long reflection that I want to 
land the plane with today. I want to bring back to our minds something that we thought about in the introduction. The ebb and the flow of chapters like 33 through 35, for example. How there's a lot of up and down. There's some good and there's some bad. There's some wonderful, there's some really ugly. One constant in all of that, as we think about so often, is that Jacob, like us, is a sinner saint. His life is up and down. His life is like ours. But the constant, definite article in all of that ebbing and flowing and all of that up and down and all of that good and bad, the constant is God, his grace, his faithfulness. It never wavers. It never changes. I don't know about you, but that's a comfort to a sinner like me. Because I feel all kind of ways about all kind of things, depending on the day, depending on the moment. There are times, like it's been acknowledged in this service today, where it's like, man, godliness feels easier right now because temptation doesn't feel near to me. And then I'm reminded regularly, as I trust you are, that virtue so often is an absence of temptation. I don't know about you. But I am comforted by the fact that God's grace and faithfulness always remains the same. So that's what's in my mind. I mean, as I'm surveying these chapters and as we're looking at them together, what is the constant amidst all of this fray? It's God. The scriptures are the witness of God's faithfulness in the face of the failure and the sin of his people. That's a summary of the Old Testament, friends. The faithfulness of God in the face of the failure of his people. It's not to say that failure is fine. It's to say God is wonderful. He's a savior. Maybe you're thinking, you're sitting there and you're like, bro, you say this a lot. You say this often. It's like, well, I do. And I say it often because it's in the text. It's all over it. It's underneath it. In every account that we've looked at so far in this book called Genesis, it is the testimony of the scripture over and over and over again that God is faithful and he's a God of steadfast covenant love and that he's gracious and merciful and that he is the reason sinners are redeemed. So in some senses, if you're thinking like, bro, you say this a lot, I'm kind of like take it up with the Lord in all humility and respect. Perhaps it is this way, saints, because God wants us to know it. So the Bible, I don't know how you've thought about the Bible in your life. I know I've heard a bunch of different things in thinking about the Bible in my life. The Bible, though, is not, and what I'm about to say may sound sacrilegious to some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. The Bible is not a handbook for living. The Bible is not some how-to guide, 19 steps to godliness or whatever. It's not what it is. It's not a medicine cabinet. You know, we open it up and here are the verses for this and here are the verses for this and take three of these and call me in the morning. It's not how it works. The scripture is the testimony of Christ and it is the testimony of God's faithfulness to us in Christ. It contains within it law and gospel. Law in its various uses. 
So you're sitting there and you may be thinking, so brother, do you think the Bible has anything to say to us about how we live? You better believe it does. It's called the law. The law in its one of its uses teaches us what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. God says the good stuff, you should pursue it. It will end well for you. The bad stuff, you need to run from it because it'll wreck your life. That's one of the uses of the law. Another use of the law in the life of the Christian, it is our perfect guide for living. What do I mean by that? Well, in God's law, he reveals his standard. He reveals something of his character. He reveals what righteousness looks like. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now love the law. We're not condemned by the law. And we say, God, please, by your spirit, conform me to that. And the Lord does that. That's a use of the law. And then what is the use of the law that is primary? Those uses of the law are wonderful. But the main use, what, why then the law? To ask the question that Paul asks. Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, Paul says, the law came in to increase the trespass. Galatians 3, why then the law? The law was added because of transgression. What's all that about? The law was given to show us our sin, to show us that we are wicked and corrupt, the depth of our ruin, to where we would say, God because as the Lord grants repentance, grants faith, all of these things, we look and we say, God, your law is good. And I am not good. You are holy and I am not holy. And I need you to do something. And you have in the person and in the work of your son whose name is Jesus. That is the primary use of the law above all other uses. It's salvific. Now, in saying that, I don't mean that the law saves. When it comes to salvation, the law can only kill. It can't save. Only Christ can save. When it even comes to the transformation of our lives, the law can only guide. It can't change you. Christ, his spirit does that. Let's keep those things straight. But that's what the scripture is, friends. It is law and it is gospel. It is glorious. It's not this 12-step program to being a better person. It's not what it is. We ought not reduce it down to something absurdly silly like that. When I talk about, though, the law, we've considered that. What about the gospel part, brother? We've alluded to it already. What is the gospel? If the law is what God requires, and if the law in Christ guides our living, if the law is our teacher and showing us what's good and bad and right and wrong. What about the gospel? Well, the gospel is the word that has everything and only to do with Jesus. I'm going to summarize it this way for us. The testimony of the scripture, law and gospel. The law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says Christ has done it. Now live in him. The law says do. The gospel says done. The law demands everything and gives nothing. The gospel demands nothing and gives you everything. You receive it. The gospel has nothing in it whatsoever for you or me to do. That is a scandalous message, is it not? 
You don't actually have to do something in order to be declared just by the holy God who made you. You receive what he did for you in his son. That's gospel. That's why it can be called good news. Because if it requires anything from a fallen sinner, it's not good news anymore. The gospel is about not what we do. The gospel is about the one we trust who has done all things well. Amen? It's about the one who has accomplished atonement and satisfaction for sins. So that we are forgiven and absolved of guilt. It's about the one who has fulfilled all righteousness so that we might be imputed, counted with that very obedience and holiness. All received by faith. God looks at us figuratively. God looks at us and he says, do you believe me when I tell you about my son? Do you believe me on this? I'm faithful. I'm good. I make promises. Do you believe my promises to you in Christ? Do you take my word on this? Do you trust my son? And we say, yes, Lord, I do. He says, righteous. Righteous. It's the gospel. It's what the scripture is about. It's about law and it's about gospel. It's a testimony of Christ and it's a testimony of the faithfulness of God in the face of our sin. What is it that the scriptures reveal about God primarily? What's he like? In a word, he's a redeemer. He is a redeemer. It's most basic. It's most fundamental. We were having a conversation at elders meeting the other night about this very thing. What is most fundamental in the Lord? God is purposeful in all things. Amen. He does nothing in an arbitrary fashion. His glory he will give to no other, nor his praise to carved idols. Amen. Somebody. Who else would we have him exalt other than himself? Amen. And God is no glory hound. When we survey the biblical witness, track with me, which is a more accurate description? of how God has revealed himself and his purposes in his word. Option A, God says, I am going to get glory for myself so that I'm going so then I'm going to redeem. I'm going to get glory so I'm going to redeem. Or B, God says, I am a redeemer and I'm going to put that on display and that will bring me glory. Saints, it's the latter. It is the latter. He is a savior. He is a redeemer. Nothing will thwart his plans to save. Nothing. What does he delight in? He says salvation. The point of the scripture as we talk all the time is God's plan of redemption accomplished through Christ, applied by the spirit, all to the praise of what? The glorious grace of God. He is benevolent. He is completely good. We're dealing with the book of the scripture that talks about creation. Why did God make man? There have been a number of things suggested through the history of the church. I would count myself amongst the number who would say, along with Irenaeus and others, that God made man so that he would have creatures on whom to bestow his blessing. Because he's good. He didn't need. God, saints, is glorified as he puts his character on display. That's all he needs to do. Is show himself. It results in his glory. Because he is glorious. 
He is. I mean, when he, for the first time in the scripture, I, describes himself, Exodus 34, I am a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who by no means will clear the guilty. No, he won't. Because he's good and in Christ, his justice has been fully satisfied. He looks on Christ and he pardons sinners, and this brings him much glory, much praise. Continue tracking me for just a minute. We're getting there. Many may be thinking Romans 9, 22 and 23, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. I'm with you. I'm with you. Put your eyes on those verses if you want to, though. I don't have them in front of me. It's okay, because I looked at them this week. God has been patient with those who hate him. That's what Romans 9.22 says. He's been patient with people who hate him. His justice and his righteousness and his power will be shown in judgment. You better believe they will. And it is, verse 23, it is in salvation, it is in mercy that the riches of his glory are made known. You can look at it. Is God glorified in judgment? Yes. Is he glorified in his holiness being vindicated? Yes. And where does he tether the riches of his glory to? The vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy that he looks upon and pardons for the sake of Christ. The riches of his glory are made known there in a pointed way. Why? Because he's a redeemer. This is our God. It's his heart. It's his mind. He lets us in on some of those things in the scripture. We should treasure when he does and he delights to save. The last thing, this is brief, that we're going to think about. Have you noticed in Genesis, have you noticed how often God reiterates his promises to his people? Have you noticed how so often he verbatim just repeats what he said on loop? He does it with Jacob in our text today. Well, God's people have always needed that. We need that. We need the constant reinforcement of what God has said because we're forgetful people. We need the Lord to continue to say, this is who I am. This is what I've done. And this is what I will continue to do for you. We need that all the time. If you've got any Jacob in you, if you've got any Abraham in you, then you need the constant reminder, son, daughter, I know everything looks like you're this. Everything looks like you're this. Everything feels like you're this, but you're not. You're this, actually. This is one of the reasons that we need to gather every week. And the Lord in his goodness has given it to us because we need to come in here and be like, hey, I need to hear this. The six days between services have maybe been saying otherwise. But this, this is who I am in Christ. The Lord shows up to remind us of who we are on Sunday. Just as God did with Jacob, he does with us. He reiterates promises. He looks at us and he says, look, you were born with a certain name. In particular, you were born with the name sinner. But you're not going to be called that anymore 
You shall be called Christian. You shall be called forgiven. You shall be called righteous. You shall be called child of God. You see the accusations and the sin and the guilt and the shame and the difficult, hard circumstances. They can be really hard to drown out. Amen. They are. It's hard to drown that stuff out. But God, in times like now, in his word, he shows up and he shuts up all of that noise. He comes and he speaks a word that we are his children. He comes and speaks a word that he is our God, that he is for us, that his promises to us are sure and certain, and that nothing, and by nothing he means nothing, will ever take those promises away. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, may you continue to teach us of your faithfulness. We desperately need to know and understand how faithful you are. We pray that you would give us faith to cling to every promise that you've made to us in your word. We pray that we would take your word on everything and not listen to all the noise of our conscience and of the enemy and of the world, but we would listen and hear you. Give us grace that we might trust you. Give us grace that we might pursue what you say is good. Give us grace that we might run from what you say is evil. Help us, we pray. Continue to even now as we come to your table and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.